Jesus is the most talked about figure in all of human history. Um, that's, that's, that's a fact. <laughs> um, more books have been written, more songs have been written, more paintings have been created. Um, more has centered around the person of Jesus than any other figure in all of history. In fact, our entire world calendar as we know it today is centered around Jesus, that B.C. is before Christ, and that A.D. is a Latin term that means in the year of our Lord. And so literally how we view the calendar and the years as we know them are centered around who is Jesus. So if Jesus is the most talked about figure in all of history, then why not study his own words to hear what did Jesus actually say about himself? And so over the next seven weeks, if, if you're here in town or if this is your first time, we're so glad you're here. You came right at the right time. We're starting a brand new series. And I want to encourage you to come back each and every week because we're going to take a look at the seven central themes or seven central statements of Jesus that actually describe his very nature and help us understand what does it mean to actually be a Christian. And that's going to culminate on Easter Sunday, um, on which Easter is, the calendar gets kind of funky when, in terms of when Easter is, but it's the latest possible in the year. So actually, Easter is April 21st. And so, um, so I really want to encourage you to be here through this whole series and to bring a friend, uh, bring a neighbor, because if anybody is skeptical about Jesus or just curious about their faith, this is the series to bring that person. And if you want to take that next step, um, this is really the series to jump into it because we're going to actually dive into who Jesus says he is and then what that means for our lives today. And so the first statement we're going to take a look at is actually when Jesus claims to be the light of the world. He claims to be the light of the world. Um, and this morning, for those that like structure, um, so we're going to kind of walk through three phases. We're going to have three phases. We're going to talk about the context around that statement. We're going to actually take a look at the claim itself. And then we're going to close by talking about what that means in describing him as the Christ or Savior. So we're going to look at context. We're going to look at the claim. And then we're going to actually describe who Jesus Christ actually is in light of that statement. Um, now, it's, it's interesting because this week um, we're, you know, I was, I was doing some prep for, uh, I was doing prep for this message, and I was at Saddle Creek where if you like the coffee, um, that's where we get the coffee. That's where you get your $5 um, gift card if you're new here um, at the guest services table. And so we were there. Um, I was hanging out. I was actually talking with Clark. We're super excited. Our um, student ministry just launched there on Tuesday nights. And so if you have a teenager, 6th through 12th grade, we meet there on Tuesday nights, which is just awesome. And so I'm um, talking with Clark, and we're prepping for the student group coming up. And so we go up to this. There's a storage spot in the back of Saddle Creek um, with a clearance of about 6 feet high. And I say that because I'm 6'5". And that is because I'm going up and I'm trying to show him some, where something is in storage. And I walk up, here, yeah, Clark, just be careful. It's kind of tight up here. And I hear all of a sudden, Kish! shattered glass all, all up in my grill up, up here. I busted an eight-foot, those long fluorescent lights right on the top of my head. I just walked up and just shattered to like a thousand pieces over and then the lumen or whatever the stuff is on the inside just came down so like my neck started pretty much glowing and uh, it was fun. Um, and I came down from stairs and I was just bleeding. No, I actually wasn't. I wasn't bleeding thankfully. 
Um, and so we went and uh, actually we said, hey, we'll be right back. We went next door to Ace Hardware, bought another light bulb, and then installed it and said, hey, I was like, yeah, somebody broke something back there. And uh, But it was definitely me. Um, and so here I am trying to do prep for a sermon on, on the value of light, and I bust my head on, I think, the world's largest light bulb because, I mean, it was this massive thing. <laughs> and so we're here, and so I guess you could say that was my light bulb moment. <laughs> and that was pretty bad, okay. Just like, we'll edit that out of the video. Um, no, so, so, um, so talking about what does it mean to have the light of the world, and, and when Jesus makes this claim, well, in order to understand the value of the statement, we have to know the context of it. And so we're going to focus in on John chapter 8, which is, um, John is kind of the fourth book of the, of the New Testament. It's a guy who wrote um, really about the purpose of describing who Jesus was. And then in, in John chapter 7, we don't have time to read through it, but actually Jesus and his disciples are at this place called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. And so um, the feast, really just kind of a brief description, was kind of the... The, the culmination of the Jewish um, season of festivals, so things like Passover or things like that. And so the last one, it was supposed to be kind of this great one called the Feast of Tabernacles, was supposed to really celebrate two things. It was supposed to celebrate the provision of God and then also the deliverance of God. So he provided for God's people when they were out in the wilderness, when they wandered for 40 years, if you think of the story of Moses. And so you have um, this idea that God provided while they disobeyed and still wandered. God still provided and then ultimately provided a way of deliverance for them and would even provide a greater way of deliverance ultimately through the Messiah. Well, Jesus comes in and actually has some really powerful statements. And in, in John 7, um, it actually comes through and it's actually in verses 37 to 39 um, while standing near water, water was a big theme tied in with this feast. He says, if you are thirsty, come to me and I will give you living water and you will never thirst again. In other words, he's saying, I can give you eternal life. And so he actually makes, by making this claim, saying that I can give you eternal life, I can give you living streams, he was actually claiming to be God. And so this, this feast of tabernacles, this celebration, it was for seven days. And then on the eighth day, they had this even bigger celebration. So just picture like a music festival, but, but very religious and with a lot of rites of passage. And so people would take pilgrimages to the city and to the temple. And then actually uh, right there around the temple, every day they would light torches saying that God will provide the way. God will provide the way. God will provide the way. And every day they would add torches to the steps around the temple so that by the eighth day it was said that you could see the temple or you could see the city from miles away from how much light was shining from this. And this is the context in which Jesus is about to make this claim. Now also what's important to know is that the Feast of Tabernacles tied in with the story of Moses because Moses was, um, he actually was saved um, as a little baby and um, he was protected. He was actually brought up under the the kind of rule and reign of Pharaoh, but he got in trouble, did something he wasn't supposed to, <laughs> killed a guy, oh, don't do that. Um, and um, no, it was really serious. You shouldn't make light of that like I just did. Um, that was inappropriate. But, um, and so he actually runs for his life. And so he's off, he, he flees, 
his royal reign and all everything that comes with that. And he's in the wilderness. Um, he has a family, and he actually meets God in a burning bush. And, and God speaks to Moses and says, I want you to go back, and you're going you're gonna to set my people free. The Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years. And so they were enslaved, and, and he says, you are going to lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses said, whoa, 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 not me. Not me. I got a stuttering problem. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And do you know what's interesting is that do you know what God does in that moment when Moses has a lot of self-doubt? I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't come and says, no, Moses, you are good enough. You can do it, Moses. You're strong. You're smart enough. Everybody likes you. For those that watched SNL back in the 90s. Um, and so looking in the mirror. And so this idea of, it's like, no, he doesn't actually affirm Moses. Do you know what he says? He actually said, when Moses says, well, when I go and I go to Pharaoh and I say, let my people go. Who should I say sent me? He says, say, I am sent you. And he gives this mic drop moment where he refers to himself as I am. Three letters in the English language here. Two words, one statement, I am. Meaning that God is the alpha and the omega. The beginning and the end. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. If God had a business card, it could simply just say, I am. Right? Well, how do you contact me? Think or speak, anything. I'll hear it. I'll, I'll get it. <laughs> right? What's your job description? Uh, creator of the universe, sustainer of the universe, savior of the world. <laughs> like, like you, couldn't, you couldn't describe God in, in a job description or in a Facebook profile. And so, like, ultimately, the best way to simply describe God is just he is. And so notice this, though. Notice this. Moses was doubting himself and, and fearing he did not have the courage to answer God's calling in his life. But rather than affirm Moses, he affirmed God. Meaning that if God has called you to do something great, it is not based on your abilities. It is based on the power and the presence of God in your life. So much is written about self-esteem, self-help, self-confidence, and that's important. We can all take steps to grow in, in our personality, in our leadership, and so we can take steps. But ultimately, when it comes to answering the call in God's life or in your life from God, it's not about self-esteem. It's about God-esteem. It's not about having confidence in your abilities, but confidence in the one who created and spoke the world into existence in the first place. Amen. See, I am. So you have this statement. So all throughout the Old Testament, God is described as simply I am. In fact, the name Yahweh was barely spoken in the Old Testament because out of reference for it. So you come to this, the New Testament, or Jesus comes onto the scene, and he starts saying these I am statements that are only reserved for God. And so it's this incredible picture. So he's at this feast celebrating Moses and God providing and taking them out of the wilderness and standing there. And he's about to make this claim, I am the light of the world. 
Now, the context continues because we have this story in the first 11 verses, and I just got to be transparent and honest with you. I want to be upfront. is that you might see in your Bibles there's like either an asterisk or like maybe parentheses that say that this little story, verses 1 through 11 here, are kind of disputed as in terms of they're not sure if it should belong in this portion of the text. And there's, um, there's a whole science behind it called textual um, criticism and understanding what goes into the Bible and when. And so, um, so people, sometimes people are hesitant to share this story. But what I find interesting is that while many commentators say it might not necessarily belong in this exact position, I've not found one that said this story didn't happen. So rather than going into a discussion about the placement of the story, where it belongs, we're going to actually read the story because I do believe it actually exhibits or exemplifies the claim that Jesus is about to make. So whether it happened at this exact moment or um, the authors or people later put it in because it ties in with his next statement, it kind of serves as a bridge in between this feast and then Jesus' claim. And so it's actually going to list this out. And so if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and read John chapter 8. Starting in verse 1. And Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Placing her in the midst, they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now pause as far as I know, I think it takes more than one person for that act. There's kiddos in the room, so we'll leave it at that. But um, yet they only bring the woman forward, right? Notice that. Notice that. So in other words, this was a trap. So they bring this woman forward, caught in sin, caught in adultery. And so they have this, and they only bring her forward. So you know this was a scheme um, set up for Jesus. And so they're trying to catch Jesus in a lie or catch him in a phrase so that they could arrest him. And it says, now the law of, sorry, in verse 5, now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they say to test him that they might have some charge to bring up against Jesus. You see, because if Jesus said that this person did not sin, then he was lied on the law. But if Jesus says that he, this woman should be stoned, then he's cruel and that movement will stop. And so in theory, they're thinking, ha-ha, we've got Jesus caught right in this difficult situation. No matter what he says, this movement of his, these followers of Jesus is going to stop. But notice what Jesus does. It says here in, um, in verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when, he, when they heard this, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So they're saying, Jesus, we should stone her. I imagine that they would take her, most likely beaten or, you know, taking the clothes away from her to shame her, throw her on the ground. And when she was at her weakest point, on the ground in front of this crowd, notice Jesus bends down. Most likely on eye level with this woman. Now Jesus writes in the sand. 
And we don't know what he writes. Some say that he started writing the names of the people there around them. Some say that maybe he was starting to write the Ten Commandments in the sand. Others say he started writing out the specific sins of the men standing around that circle. But whatever it is that he wrote in the sand, that crowd started slowly walking away. And then we come to verse 10. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So we have this context. We have this story. And in the very next verse, it says, and again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, here's what I want you to understand in this context of this story, is that when culture grabbed a stone, Jesus reached out a hand. Here is this woman. They don't go deep into her sin, but we know that she had felt shame. She had felt guilt. She had felt embarrassed, she felt judged, she felt neglected, and in this worst, lowest moment, Jesus doesn't grab a stone, but actually reaches out a hand. And it's in that moment, it's in that context, whether it's in this place or not, it fits right in with his statement that I am the light of the world. Because then he goes on and he talks about the, the validity of his witness. And then in chapter 9 of John, he actually heals a blind person, equating physical blindness to spiritual blindness. He says, no, I bring life. I bring light. I am the light of the world. He who believes in me will not walk in darkness, but have life. And so if you, you have the context of this story... See, Jesus reaching out to this woman. But then we have the claim itself. And so here's what the claim, what I believe, means. Okay. Darkness leads to guilt and shame. Light leads to grace and salvation. Darkness, the end result of darkness ultimately is death, but it leads to guilt and to shame. But Jesus being light, bringing light, leads to grace and salvation. You see, the Bible, and, and as we know as doctrine, the written word of God, is not a club, but a key. <laughs> you use a club to, to hit someone over the head with. Maybe some of you had a religious class as a child, and you had to like, whop, right? Maybe, but we've taken that notion as, as children and now as adults, we take that like, oh, oh man, they, they're really messed up. <laughs> Here I come with my judgment. Bah! Like, yeah, that's sin, that's sin, that's sin. Like, that doesn't change anything, right? In your house, imagine how horrible the temperature would be if all you had in your house were thermometers and no thermostats. Think about it. A thermometer just simply tells you the temperature. 
but a thermostat actually sets the temperature. And as Christians, and when we're called to live, we're not called to be the sin police, to walk around going, sin, oh, you're wrong, you missed that one, you missed that one, nope, that one's wrong, nope, you're wrong, oh, look at this person's horrible, right? Like, that's not, we're not called to be thermometers to just tell the temperature. We know that the world is broken. And if we're honest, I think we know that we are broken. But what if instead of being a thermometer, we actually were called to be thermostats? In other words, we actually set the temperature of the room. We actually set the, the feeling in the room. That means every place we go, every, the workplace and the family and the conversation on the sports team, we actually bring light and freedom into this. Because just a few verses later, after talking about the light, he says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And I had just, I had an actual light bulb, not just broken on my head moment, uh, in studying this this week. And that is when Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you, I had a whole new revelation of what that really meant. Because when I first read that, I was like, oh, Jesus was being nice. Man, this person was messed up, but Jesus said, nope, go, you're free. But no, he didn't say just that you're free, that, that sin didn't matter. Because if the woman wasn't going to pay for her sin, who was? He was. So he could look at that woman in the eye and say, I do not condemn you. And in doing so, I condemn myself. Because you can go free, because I will take your punishment. The very fact that he can reach down his hand and say, go and sin no more, you, will, you, do not, you are not condemned. It's not because he's light on sin, but actually even deeper, he takes sin so seriously that he dies for you and for me. That he brings light into the world. That's why the name of Jesus is beautiful. The name of Jesus is powerful. It's wonderful. He says in John chapter 1 verses 1 to 4, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through him, for without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, forgiveness is free, but it is not cheap. Just because you didn't pay the bill doesn't mean somebody didn't either. So here's this woman caught in adultery in the worst moment, feeling guilt, feeling shame. And Jesus comes in as a light and removes that and says, give me your shame. He says, give me your guilt. Give me your grief. Give me your pain because you were not meant for that. You were not meant to wallow in grief. You were not meant to be stuck in your sin. You were meant to be alive. You were meant to be forgiven. You were meant to have relationship. You were meant to experience love and joy and peace. And, and I will die for you. So when we battle with our sin, when we struggle, understand that that debt's been paid. 
How foolish would it be to go to the store, check out, and then go back in and try to rebuy the stuff? They're going to look at you. I know this has already been bought, but I, no, I, I think I know I want to pay again. Amen, right? See, Satan isolates, gets us to doubt. He gets us to question and say we're not worthy, we're not good enough. We start, we start comparing ourselves. Well, at least I'm not bad as that person. At least I'm not as bad as this person. But see, in darkness, sin grows. Hatred grows. Doubt grows. Self-doubt grows. But when we're facing self-doubt, when we struggle... Jesus says, it's not about you. I am strong enough for your doubt. I am strong enough for your issue. I am strong enough for your addiction. I am str- my love is deeper than anything that you can offer because the debt has been paid. So we can trust Jesus because he is the light of the world. Light travels so fast. That, that's how we describe the fastest thing that we know of in terms of light years, right? You have the sun, which is 93 million miles away, okay? 93 million miles away, but yet the sunlight travels here in eight minutes. And when you stand outside, there's warmth. There's freedom. There's trust. So that we can now be the light of the world. Um, for people that grew up in kind of the disco era, uh, I was actually interested to know that uh, the disco ball was actually in, invented, by, invented by some Germans in like the 1920s um, and then came out. But the concept of a disco ball, hey, if you want to have a party, it's not that this ball is of light, but that it just has all these little mirrors on it so that when light shines upon it, it reflects to everything else. In a way that describes the church, that we're a bunch of broken mirrors that when placed together can serve as a light into this dark world. Just as the moon does not emit its own light but reflects the light of the sun in a dark time, so too we as a church can reflect the light and love that comes from knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. The fact that Jesus is the light, the fact that Jesus can look at you and whatever you're going through and say, neither do I condemn you. Man, that feels good. That's called grace. That's called salvation. As the band comes up on stage, let us remember as a church that there is no sin too dark for God's forgiveness in your life. There is no issue so deep-rooted that God cannot heal and that God cannot free. And that means that no matter how dark your workplace is, no matter how difficult your situation is, when God comes in, light changes everything. Notice before you came in, the, the stage was dark. And with the lights on the stage, there's no battle up here. There's no battle. When, when lights are on, darkness runs. 
There's no battle for dark and light. Light always wins. <laughs> Remember that. Light always wins. Bring the light into every conversation. Bring the light into it. Have you ever seen those videos where, um, it's kind of funny, but, and we'll kind of end with this, is that have you ever seen the videos where someone's in a parked car and they're stuck and someone tries to help them get out? Have you ever seen this? And so there's a, like a 10-minute video of this lady who's like stuck. There's, there's like parallel park, like so close he can't move. And then, um, and so for 10 minutes, they work with this lady to finally get her car out. And when she finally gets the car out, the lady who helps her goes, oh, have a great day. She, she goes, unlocks her car, gets in the car right in front of her and pulls out. <laughs> and so they could have helped the whole time. Here's the thing. If you are a Christian, you have the answer, you have the light, you have the solution in front of you. Meaning that you can enter any situation. You have it with you already. So we try to help in other ways, forgetting the fact that we have the light of the world. And it's not about us, it's about him. So receive the light and bring the light to every conversation this week. I'm going to close your eyes and bow your heads. I just want to pray for a minute and, and just ask God to bring light into your situation. Maybe it's a circumstance. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's a struggle. Whatever it is, whatever battle you're facing right now, I just want to pray and just say, and just bring God into it. And it's not about our strength, but about his. Dear God, I just thank you for your son. God, I thank you that in the middle of our mess, you came down and you bring light and you bring hope and you bring forgiveness that only comes through paying the price on the cross. God, I pray that we can receive your light this morning. That if you've never prayed to receive you, that we can admit that we've sinned. That we can believe that you are God. And that we can commit our lives to you. And God, help us to be light bringers. Into our families, into our friendships, into our workplace, into our kids' sports team. Whatever it is, God, may we just bring the light in. Because I look at our world and it seems to be getting darker. But it's in the middle of the darkness, God, that your light shines even brighter. Thank you for being the light of the world, God. Your name truly is beautiful. Your name is wonderful. Your name is powerful, God. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.